Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hello and a very warm welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Catherine Devaney is a writer, commentator and comedian. She's the author of nine books, including Mental, Use Your Words, The Happiness Show and It's Not My Fault They Print Them. Today I'm talking to Catherine about her memoir, True North. Catherine, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. True North begins with a relationship breakdown. Your words are, when we get home, I'm moving out. We've tried everything a million times and we're just getting sicker and sicker. There has to be something better than this. I'm exhausted. I surrender. I guess the implication of that is that relationships might be a bit like a war, are they? No, they're not like a war at all. It's just like a peeling of skin. I think that what makes what makes people think it might be like a war has got to do with the perception of... Um, you know, changing things and transitions being some kind of failure. So I think the war is just with our own perception of how longevity is somehow a sign of a good relationship or even long-term monogamy. So, no, we certainly didn't have a war between us. We just kind of had a, I, I suppose, a tantrum with reality, you know, that that cognitive dissonance that you have when you had this idea of what you wanted to be and you invested in it. And you tried, you know, as much as you can to um, make it work. And if relationships were about how much work you put in, Mars and I would still be together. It's just people change and we, it's not just relationships we split up with. We're constantly splitting up with ideas and um, perceptions of ourselves and how we want to live, how we want to eat, what we want to dress, you know, gender, sexuality, politics, everything. But, they're, they're, you know, the patriarchy and religion and the state have a vested interest in keeping us in a state of nuclear families and particularly heterosexual, you know, the toxic heterosexuality and toxic monogamy is um, really helpful to um, keep the patriarchy in its place and to keep women as slaves and incubators and guys as exhausted um, wage slaves um, just not being able to, you know, live their full, authentic, deep, true lives. I think you capture that, the essence of that thought in uh, one of the phrases you use, capitalism works best when the nuclear family model keeps a woman and a man financially dependent on each other in order to force people to work long hours at shit jobs. We need to give them no other options. Is uh, that exactly what you're trying to say? Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, and the thing is that that was never my experience because I've always, um, I've always been financially, creatively, socially, and emotionally independent, and you know we're equal parented and all the rest of it. So that um, that gave me the privilege and the fortune to be able to leave at the perfect time when you just went, okay, I've tried this every single way as much as I'm prepared to, and uh, it's time to move on. This book's full of interesting observations and turns a phrase, and here's one that I'll put to you. Fuck off status. What is it? How do you get it? And what difference does it make? Oh, fuck off status is simply having your your business, your money in your house and being able to tell anyone you don't want to deal with to fuck off. So I think that everybody should be... Uh, 
aiming for it and also encouraging and enabling that in all the people around them. And I think it's something good to throw around in your head because a lot of people, um, and I would say particularly men, but actually come to think of it, I don't think that's true. Like a lot of men, there's this idea that they're the providers and they're the ones who, you know, get on the bended knee and give the expensive ring and, you know, they're the ones who do the big performative, you know, look at all this money I'm making. And and she says, oh, look at him. He really looks after me. And he bought me this car with my name on the registration plate. And um, as though that's some kind of form of love or status or something like that. So I think that, you know, even the idea that men are supposed to pay on dates and first dates and all that kind of ridiculousness that I've just never experienced in my life. And it gives me the ick, actually. It's extremely creepy. Um, along with, you know, women changing their surnames and children all having their father's surnames. It's incredibly creepy and so unexamined. So um, uh, women need to, well, everybody needs to, but women in particular need to go through their life and set up their life as if they're going to be single for their whole life and um, not only single but financially providing for themselves and others. Now, I understand that that um, also involves, you know, structural change up the pipeline with you know governments and universal basic income and uh, fair access to all the things that you know men have but fuck off status is something that everybody should be um, aiming for and enabling and if they don't want to enable it that's probably worth investigating why is it that you don't want your partner your children your parents uh, to be financially separate from you and you know what's in that weird toxic fucked up relationship where it's about a financial transaction i just to be honest i I just think that if money wasn't an issue that most people wouldn't be together and particularly most people with children and that is so fucked like how is it that if we agree that women should be allowed to have children and they should be able to have as many as they want why aren't the government just paying for outright for the raising of these citizens of their country, these babies that are citizens of the country, the um, financial and emotional stability of a citizen of this country, being a child, baby, should not be tied to a potentially unstable source financially or emotionally, which could be, you know, whoever is the partner. And And in most cases, it's the father. I want to take you back for a moment to uh, a moment in a bookshop that you write about, um, and it's a moment of profound revelation. I and my emotions are separate, you say. What brought you to that moment and what did you find in that bookshop? Oh, it's interesting. It's so funny talking about this book. I mean, the thing is about kind of when books come out and book launches, it's kind of like having a party for a lasagna you cooked five years ago. Um, I, It's like, oh, did I write that? And it's like, oh, that's right, because like, it's I'm I'm launching it now, but I'm on to other projects. So I know exactly what you're talking about. I was really in um I was just at my wits end trying to kind of make sense of what to do next and how to do it. And I was so low on um energy. I went in and I went into readings bookshop at the self-help section and I just bought $350 worth of books. And there was one of the books was Eckhart Tolle. This guy was totally down on his luck, like just sleeping rough, suicidal ideations and had been for quite some time. This is my memory of how it went, which may not be correct, but what stayed with me was this. He was just at the end of his tether and he thought, I can't live with myself anymore. 
And then he realized there was two parts, the I and myself. I can't live with myself anymore. And so it was at that point that I started to really separate my feelings from me. And I kind of started to see them as a a kind of a little child kind of acting out or playing up or being distressed. And so it made that separation. So when I would start to feel unregulated or start, you know, being overwhelmed with grief or confusion or frustration or just like a whirly mind that wouldn't stop in hypervigilance, I'd just go, oh, wow, look at what my emotions are doing. I literally see them like they were a small child separate from me. And, um, and I would treat them and care for them like that. It's just like, oh, what do you need? And come and sit here and stay as long as you want. And I didn't push them away. I, I sat with them and I comforted them and I, I treated them the way that I would treat a, a, an unregulated four-year-old. Your book is full of these moments and there's another one I'd like to talk about. It's uh, where you're pulled over by a young policeman who, rather than fine you for your reckless driving, simply cautioned you. It might ordinarily be a very minor incident, possibly just an annoying one, but you call it a turning point. What made it a turning point? I, I, I was really unregulated and I was, I was just panicked and running on empty. I was writing two columns a week for the age. I had three little kids. I was having an affair. A relationship was breaking down. I was in a real a state of um, of real distress, and was just just putting out fires everywhere, and just really wasn't thinking straight. And I had a collection of fines for you know running red lights and speeding and not wearing my um, my uh, seatbelt. And um, I, I pulled into the back of a supermarket where I go quite a bit, the IGA in um, Brunswick, and this cop just pulled in next to me in the car park next to me and said um and he i can't remember exactly how it go it went but the maybe you'll have to read the book listeners um it went something like he just said you you can't drive like that you're going to kill yourself and it was so calm and so non-judgmental and so caring and he probably could have given me a ticket and i probably would have even lost all of the demerit points I had and lost my license but he was so kind um it really um it went to the core of me I just think that there's these moments when you're going through such distress that um you just you hear things in a different way and they land I was so fractured perhaps it was the light that went that kind of caught through the cracks you touch on quite a few topics, and one of them is your childhood. And here's a, another quote from Pam Leo, who's a, a parenting guru, if you like. Let's raise children who won't have to recover from their childhoods. How does that statement apply to you? Well, I think, you know, like like most people who brought up in the 70s, um, you know, raised in working class Catholicism, you know, we were raised like unwanted pets and there was so much um, abuse and trauma and dysfunction and it was so normalized there was um it, we were just mired in lies and misogyny and um depression and distress um and it was it was hard for all of us and we all coped in different ways and i don't cope i don't have you know drugs aren't my jive or um, violence isn't my jive or I don't know I mean my, my coping mechanism is coping so you know there's this great 
saying, famous saying by Hannah Gadsby, whose memoir also comes out this week, which I'm sure is a cracker and I've loaded up on my Kindle, says, I think the strongest person in the world is a woman who's rebuilt herself, uh, which is me. So I think that we have to, we often have to rebuild ourselves, not those of us who can after a traumatic um know growing up in that kind of environment and to be honest i don't know anyone who didn't suffer trauma or abuse in their childhood at all i just i don't think you can escape it but some people have other privileges and fortune and character uh, traits that that help them find health you know fairly healthy ways to cope with it but my coping is coping and when we uh heal ourselves and repair ourselves we can repair others i mean you don't have to do that kind of work in your childhood and you don't even have to do it in a therapy room. It can be fr- between friends and um, and logical family and partners and all different kinds of people in your life and, and, and creativity and music and art and work and, you know, community. And parents all went through their own abuse and trauma and dysfunction and difficult times. And I think it's only really now that... Um, some of us are lucky to be able to patch ourselves up, get strong and move on to a place where we are, we can get to the best possible place with the least amount of damage and we're able to help others. You know, there's a Tony Morrison quote that was in front of my writing book, Use Your Words, and it, and it was the purpose of freedom is to free other people and that basically sums me up. Some of that abuse you attribute to uh, the Catholic Church or at least your Catholic upbringing, and you actually say every raised Catholic was sexually abused, whether a priest laid a hand on them or not. Is that really getting to the heart of the matter? If you grew up in the Catholic Church, you experienced the constant and toxic misogyny, homophobia, sex negativity, body negativity. It was relentless. It was relentless, and it's just... It's kind of bizarre when you think about the, the what they sell you about the idea of religion and Catholicism and Christianity. If you actually look at the amount of time spent talking about how evil bodies are and desire and sex, and it's it's just so weird. But it was so normalised. There was this constant discussion, and it was just it was there all the time. You know, even you know the first Holy Communion, where the little girls get dressed up in white dresses with veils like brides, and they still do. I mean, anyone outside the Catholic Church, if they think about Catholicism, all they think about is pedophilia. So, I mean, that and the pedophilia, in some ways, like that's a visible. It's like this is a very visible uh, part of their the sexual dysfunction in the church, but the part that needs to be spoken about more is just the insidious and constant uh, sex negativity and uh, homophobia, misogyny, fetishization of virgins and oh just it's so weird. I mean if you're not if you're not brought up in it and you know people who are like there's so many people who I've known mates of mine who were not born up in the Catholic Church but have hung out with a lot of Catholics because we're good we're good crack. Um, they say it sounds like a cult. It's like, it is a cult. It's a virginity cannibalism cult. That's all it is. The final chapter in True North is about the death of your mother. Did her death bring closure, regret, forgiveness? No, just happiness and joy. I just feel relief, happiness and joy. And I have since the second she died. I feel like I was involved in a 53-year um 
legal battle and it's finally been found in my favour and it's I've got to pay out and it's all over. Just 100% happiness and joy. Catherine Devaney, thank you for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you. I've been talking to Catherine Devaney about her memoir, True North. It's published by Black Ink and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs and thanks for listening. Subscribe to Good Reading Print and Online Magazine at goodreadingmagazine.com.au.